0: I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. My guest is Virginia Lee Montgomery, whose new solo show, Pony Cocoon, is up now at False Flag in Long Island City through March 24th. The show is titled after a new film, following the birth of a luna moth from a disembodied blonde ponytail, a frequently used symbol in Virginia's practice. Her films are diffused with these repeated visual motifs. Dripping honey engulfs an object. A power drill bores a perfect hole through the surface of an image. A narwhal's horn pierces the arctic water. Images become like recurring characters through her films, which unfold like a surrealist mind map, attempting to make sense of free associative thought. Concurrent to her art practice, Virginia works as a graphic facilitator, meaning she travels the country diagramming the flow of ideas and concepts for a variety of corporate clientele. The influence of this work is clearly felt in the way she edits her films, taking seemingly disparate ideas and finding the ways they're interconnected. Here I am with Virginia Lee Montgomery.
1: I'm interested very much so in the elements, the kind of elemental dynamics. And it's interesting to me how as soon as one gets interested in you know, the history of the Materials from an elemental space, it automatically brings up these associations of the occult. Mm -hmm. They're kind of inseparable.
0: Yeah, how do you mean?
1: You know, for example, if one is looking at the usage of stones and mirrors, you know, you try to go back and even in the historical, like an archival record to try to find information about, you know, usage of stones, very quickly you're going to be finding information about stones as they were used in a ritual sense. And then I guess if we're we're analyzing, you know, ritual objects as they are activated within a a theological context, patriarchal theological rule hasn't been very kind to women that are also working Mm -hmm. in divination spaces. So immediately those women are cited to be witches, Mm -hmm. even if they were just, um, I don't know, working with herbs, Using a stone to grind up the herbs, so, and that way, I think that anytime you actually look at kind of base, base materials, elements, you're you're just going to like run into a history of witchcraft, even mm-hmm. if it has nothing to do with. I don't know. Some, maybe some of the more like colorful aspects of witchcraft. Yeah, we have to, like, it can be
0: kind of mundane. Like we're like it can chemistry. It's kind of mundane. Yeah. It's like
1: chemistry. I mean, it was just like healing arts, basically. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's like you know the the activities to summon Satan, and then there's the oh you have a headache, let me take this tree bark and like <laughs> yeah. just it's fascinating. That kind of
0: experiential knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. I know you did this. This it's water witching. Yeah, which was in response to a memorial that Louise Bourgeois and. um Sunthor?
1: Mm -hmm. Sunthor, right? Sounds about right. But yeah, it was related to the Stadelic witch trials of northern Norway. And it was one of Louise Bourgeois' last projects. And I learned about the project through the curator, Alison Karask, who recently graduated from Bard. And she was doing a lot of site research there in Norway, learning about just the atrocities that had happened through the European witch trials and you know through an invitation that she'd extended to me through the Hessel Museum asked me to make a film about kind of that historical experience but then also kind of cross-analyzing it with some current themes that were coming up in history about how women were being perceived you know, the political context was that Trump had also just been elected and there was a mm-hmm. woman's march on Washington. And so there was a lot of eruption in the national psyche around the treatment of women. And in creating the film Water Witching, I was really trying to create through video, find a way of weaving the psychic structure with both elements that related to say, the past and elements of the future. So, you know, I've never been to the Arctic Circle in Norway, but I do know that it's a place that's populated by, say, narwhals. And um, and I did attend the Women's March on Washington in D.C., and I remember looking at, you know, the large spire of the National Monument and thinking, mm-hmm. like, oh, my gosh, it looks like a narwhal horn. Yeah. And so that was kind of my starting point of just trying to blend together these different signifiers, both natural and political, and weave together this kind of dreamlike world. For me, the really interesting thing about water witching is that it actually is a practical how-to video on how to create one's own divination device. So in the video, you actually see me manipulating these two wire rods.
0: Are they metal hangers?
1: Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Yeah, they're metal hangers. And um, it was actually through doing research online that I realized that one can build your own water witching divination set through just using a coat hanger. And I remember being fascinated by that because a coat hanger, of course, is iconography that's supercharged within the women's rights movement. And I remember seeing this poster of a coat hanger that said, no, no. And then looking at that same coat hanger and being like, oh, my gosh, I can repurpose that apparatus to then actually use it as a device to then conjure something that's more optimistic. And that was kind of, again, a starting point. So in the video, you watch me um, and then through jump cuts, because, you know, video is this magic space where you can within a second just like bring up a bunch of different associations. But it goes from. Women's March poster, coat hanger, coat hanger, hands, hands manipulating, summoning water. Water erupts out, and so you do really instantly watch this tool being used as a tool to summon resources.
0: It's so cool that you can that you can lay it out like that. That you can <laughs> that you can say it's oh it's this 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 this. I mean, were you how did you get interested in video when you went into Yale? Were you as a sculpture major or a sculpture um, MFA student? Were you making videos at that time too?
1: I had just started making videos, so I have a background, a BFA, from the University of Texas at Austin, and I was a student of Mike Smith, the performance artist, so I'd always been really interested in performative gestures and then finding ways of capturing them on video, Um, but I didn't make art for for quite a few years when I was building up the skill set towards this other surreal career I have called graphic facilitation, which I can... Talk about at length later,
0: which is which is very similar in a lot of ways to your art practice. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yes. So a lot of graphic facilitation is the awareness of the symbolic structure, the symbolic meaning structure of iconography and images, and then being able to listen for them or observe them, and then summon them and then sequence them to produce meaning. Mm -hmm. So the way I approach video art is pretty similar. You know, I think about kind of like what is the core meaning or core tone, and then what are symbols, and how can I move those symbols around in space to Mm -hmm. produce meaning? Now, in video art, I've always been really interested in just trying to work with maybe things that um, seem really unrelated on a symbolic spectrum. So again, like the pointed apparatus of a divination rod, a narwhal's horn, and the Washington Monument. Because mm-hmm. they all formally have the same structure, yeah. but they have different meanings. But then how can they all coalesce together to then create something greater? Mm-hmm. But yeah, my so my practice of making videos in a sense is pretty new. I've had kind of an explosion of video art making in the past few years. Yeah, I'll say. But um but that but that desire and that kind of like symbolic way of analyzing the world around me, I think, has been in my been in my blood for a while.
0: I'm curious. I'm talking to our I'm talking to our dear listeners right now. <laughs> and I'm curious if, if they can hear the music. Is that Nelly? Who is that?
1: Oh, I don't know, but I like it. It makes me feel like um I'm on a beach. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, if you can hear it, then then it's coming from the garage next door. And I, I like it too. Let's get let's talk about your let's talk about your day job of sorts for a sec. So right. how did you get on this? Path. I mean you describe it to me as mind map scribing. Mm-hmm. What is it that you do exactly?
1: So I'm a trained graphic facilitator. I'm actually licensed or a member of the International Forum of Visual Practitioners. You in a union? <laughs> Kinda. It's it's not super formal, but we are we are we are a collective of sorts and um The skill set, graphic facilitation, is not something that I invented. It's actually been around since the 1970s, and it came out of the Bay Area. It came out of essentially architects in Silicon Valley um, meeting up with uh, designers and trying to find different ways of organizing information. Visually, it's it's really hard to actually describe how impactful it is, but when you see it operate in real time, you're like, oh, that makes sense. But essentially what graphic facilitation is, is it's the ability to listen to speech on the fly. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have any background, any notes of what someone's going to say, but you listen on the fly, you stand in front of a really big whiteboard, and you have these markers. And as someone is talking... Your real-time listening, thinking, synthesizing, drawing, and depicting, mm-hmm. and also then organizing the information in a large infographic for an audience member.
0: So at the end of the day, you can look at this board and understand exactly like how how an idea was built and, yeah, and all the stages of it.
1: Exactly. How do
0: you train for it? Like, how did you learn how to do it?
1: Practice, practice. I worked at a small um, New York-based agency that specializes just in graphic facilitation. There aren't a lot of people that do it. It's it, it's itself kind of a weird job, but it's also kind of challenging to build up the skill set. You have to really just practice and practice and practice. But I was an apprentice scribe for like a year and a half, mm-hmm. um, built up the skill set, did a lot of work at conferences, and now I'm a... Um, I'm kind of like a free agent. You know, I, I have a group that I work with a lot, but I also have my own freelance work. So,
0: And where do, like what kind of context do you, do you work in mostly? You travel a lot for it.
1: I travel constantly because all the work that I do is at different conferences around the country. And as far as the subject matter of the conference, I mean, it can span everything from fashion to pharmaceutical. I mean, it mm-hmm. could be Kenneth Cole talking about supply chain management. It could be a pharmaceutical company talking about how they want to digitize patient records and mm-hmm. have them available on the cloud. And so the interesting thing about my job is that it's, I'm constantly learning, but it really is this fascinating kind of meta, meta way of understanding the infrastructure of how information transits. Um, yeah, I've I've done like every type of conference. It's really hard for me to think of like an industry I haven't worked in yet. I mean, everything from education. I've worked with educational summits where teachers are talking about better ways to actually commodify learning resources to help students with disabilities to actually working with the American Dairy Association, you know, talking about the distribution of dairy, how we can get dairy products into K through 12 school systems on meal plans. I mean, there's like Every type of client who I've done South by Southwest Interactive a few years. And I've Mm -hmm. stood on stage in front of an audience of like 7,000 people and drawn Neil Young's presentation as he was pitching this like specially designed audio player, I think called Pono. The Pono player? Yeah.
0: Neil Young's failed experiment. (laughs) (laughs) I was there. Oh my God. Wait, let's get into this for a (laughs) sec. Jeez. Sidebar but Let's, let's really dig into that. Did he, did he meet Neil? Did you talk to Neil before you got on
1: stage with him? I did not talk directly with him. I talked to some of his team, but I do, I do typically sit in a green room Mm -hmm. with different thought leaders or famous people like Neil Young. I sit in a green room. I get to hang out on the same couch, (laughs) drink, drink from the same, uh, you know, Dasani water bottle stock, but um but I am pretty shy, you know. <laughs> I kind
0: of like <laughs> that, did, it, did his mind map make sense? Was it a good map?
1: Yeah. I mean it was it was talking about the benefits of the of the Pono system. I mean it was pretty direct. It's like I I, I wish I could recount like the, the technological <laughs> specifics of it. I, I could find the diagram, but um but if you do actually go back on Getty images and look up Neil Young, South by Southwest interactive.
0: You're like in the background. You know,
1: you'll you'll see me, like, you know, he's up on the stage and then I'm uh, I'm essentially a little bit lower on stage right in front of like a giant eight foot whiteboard. Mm-hmm. And you'll see a woman there with a the ponytail. <laughs> That's me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so, well, so speaking of which, speaking of the ponytail. So one of the cool things like, and this is why I say it makes a lot of sense that this is like a, a practice that you also have concurrent to your art practice, because a lot of the films deal with symbolic imagery and like repeated imagery. You know, like there's a lot of these same kind of images that come up in 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 works that you do one of the, it seems like one of the earliest ones is this, the ponytail, this sort of disembodied ponytail that does resemble your own two ponytails at this. I yes. Don't if, that... I don't know if you call them something different, if there's two akimbo ponytails.
1: Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. No, the, um.
0: How did that come in? How, what was the first principle there? how did you begin developing that idea?
1: The ponytail idea really came from me looking at imagery, looking at photographs of myself taken from audience members while I was graphic recording at different events. So, you know, as a performer that doesn't face your audience, but you're still performing, Mm -hmm. you become very aware that the side of you that's always visible is not your front side, but your backside. And, you know, when you have a ponytail, the ponytail also exists on the backside. So I would see all these images of myself like, South by Southwest Interactive, Neil Young. And I would never see my face, but I would just always see the ponytail. And I typically wear all black, so it would just be like...
0: This floating, this floating blonde ponytail. It just be this
1: ponytail, ponytail, ponytail. And then I realized at a certain point, like, oh, everywhere that I travel for work, the ponytail also travels for work. Mm-hmm. It's just me and Pony on tour constantly. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Um,
0: me and Pony on tour.
1: Yeah, and then at a certain point, I was like, well... What if I, um, what if I double that up? What if like Pony has a pony, and then that is when I got the three foot long blonde ponytail prop. Mm-hmm. So there is the ponytail that always is bound to my body, and then there's the one that's the disembodied one. Which Where does is, the prop come from? It's actually, uh, it's a pony's ponytail.
0: Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> How did you get it? So you have this impulse. You're like, I need to find a ponytail that I can. Keep with me, right? Where where do you go for an
1: equestrian supply store? <laughs> I think there I think there are neurotic horses as we listen to this. Uh...
0: <laughs> I told you it's a hotbed of audio problems. This space. All
1: right. Well, we we're in the heart of Industrial Queens today at False Flag. Um, there we go. Oh, there we are. Uh, I realized that my ponytail needed a ponytail, and I reached out to an equestrian supply site to purchase an actual ponytail for a pony. Mm-hmm. Because neurotic ponies will chew off their tails, and then
0: dude, so I replace them. Yeah, were you are you into equestrian stuff at all? You grew up in Texas. I grew up in Texas. You ride <laughs> horses?
1: Um, I did grow up riding horses. Uh, you know, I like horses, it's but you're not...
0: not you're not all about it.
1: Oh, I mean, I'm into it, but I'm not like all about it. <laughs> but, You know, if you invite me on a trail ride, I'll, I'll definitely participate. <laughs> you can you
0: can hold your own.
1: I can hold my own. I did I did hunter jumper English. I also did western. I really love barrel racing. Um, you know, like I said, for years I wasn't really quote unquote making art, but I guess I was always doing these activities and I I didn't really see them initially as artworks. It was just kind of me trying to make sense of the world by building out my own kind of meta structure and one of them was documenting this blonde ponytail in every corporate hotel room I was staying in for yeah job and then I just kind of started building up a data set and then making work from that and I still do it you know the ponytail still travels with me weekly
0: so that was the first so that was the first symbol that you're playing with
1: yeah exactly and it came about from just looking at this multitude of images of myself that I didn't know that were being taken and there's there's a record of them I mean Mm -hmm. it's you'd have to know which obscure conferences or major conferences I've worked at to find like the actual ponytail in Mm -hmm. the wild but I like this idea of there being, like, the ponytail in the wild at the conference and then there being a ponytail that was always, like, sleeping back at the hotel room. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I was just making my own weird reality. I mean, I don't know how most people get through life. But. <laughs> well, see, there's actually
0: something really funny about this because I, I feel like, you know, I obviously don't travel as much as you do and, and for these this sort of conference, but... I definitely know that feeling of when you check into some of these hotels that are these very kind of, you know, they're very corporate. They're mm-hmm. very, and, and it's it's kind of, kind of the world of a lot of your films are these sort of kind of sterile corporate hotel suites. And they're all the same, but they're all a little different. Yes. You know what I mean? All the, the pattern is different. The upholstery is a little different, but they, the structure is the same. Mm-hmm. So in Pony Hotel, there's this disembodied ponytail that's sort of moving around the room and like, in different places and it's being kind of manipulated sort of by a pulley Mm -hmm. by someone we can't I mean I know it's you but it's someone (laughs) off screen that we can't see but the reason it's funny to me is that I think that when you go to these sort of conferences or you go to these sort of like hotels and you have a a task you have all this like weird downtime
1: yes where you're like in
0: the city and you don't you you can't quite go anywhere you don't really Mm -hmm. know what to do but you're just kind of in this hotel room so you are using that time to begin making your art
1: Yes, exactly. And I'm so glad that you get it because oftentimes people are like, but why don't you call up a friend and go hang out? And I'm like, you don't understand. I only have like a 45 minute break. I only have two hours and I'm stuck here at the Mandalay Bay Hotel in Las Vegas. (laughs) What am I going to do? And so um, I bring my camera with me. I have a small metal pulley, some airplane wire and the ponytail. And I will just start dancing with the ponytail in my hotel room, documenting it. And I do like the idea of claiming uh the hotel room as a studio space.
0: Yeah, there's something kind of subversive about it in a weird way, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know if my clients exactly know what I'm doing, but um but it is my own private space. Yeah. I mean yeah. I'm not violating a non-disclosure agreement with the ponytail and it it's it's a really kind of benign form of subversion, but um But I think—I've been thinking a lot recently about how maybe it's subversive to be conscious, just to be conscious of a situation. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about the ponytail as a device is it really serves to create an index or map out every one of those surreal different hotel rooms. Yeah. Because you're right that they're all the same, but they're all kind of different.
0: It's very uncanny.
1: Yes. And and as someone that's in one every other week, Mm -hmm. it's very weird. It's a strange it's a strange way to move through the world. But for me it's fascinating to watch how the design itself tends to really reference this these very specific type of design tropes within the innovation sector. Mm-hmm. So in, in the world of innovation there's a lot of Linguistic championing of the idea of transparency, and then you watch that actually be architecturally played out with yeah. these like epic glass windows, where the materials in the room, everything is like clear and transparent mm-hmm. and glass, and that. Um, very slick. Everything's really slick, yeah. and so, you know, when I'm in there, you know, as a a weird small woman art making machine, very aware of my body, I'm just always looking at like the glass and knowing that every fingerprint I put down there's mm-hmm. going to be a residue and I'm looking at my hair and um, thinking, "Oh, am I dropping hairs on the ground?" <laughs> and so you, you become so aware of your body when you are in these uh-huh. like very clean mm-hmm. um, clean, 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 strange spaces, which it, it bec- it's just becoming a really strange kind of anthropological survey mm-hmm. of what contemporary business looks like mm-hmm. in a weird way. So, what
0: about some of the other tropes that you're working mm-hmm. with? The one that immediately comes to my mind is also is also your drill. Yes, your Dewalt drill. My I DeWalt hope Dewalt drill. sent me some money for this. <laughs> I
1: I would love a partnership. If anyone here listening sponsored has a contact, I you know how skaters get sponsored. Yeah. I want to be sponsored. You by should
0: be sponsored. Dewalt, DeWalt should sponsor this I podcast. Would love that.
1: <laughs> I would love that. So yes, I have a Dewalt drill, and she's gendered. I call her Hole Maker. Because that's maker. what she does. She makes holes. and
0: Perfect circular holes.
1: She makes perfect holes wherever she goes. And a big part of my video practice is actually making very sculptural videos. I don't, I don't use CGI. I try not to use a lot of digital special effects. Instead, I'll actually build out a small model of like a screen space by actually taking a screen grab, printing it out, mounting it on foam core board, and then taking my DeWalt drill and then going, Shh, and then like, Penetrating that, mm-hmm. filming it, and then introducing it back into the editing sequence. So, I, I think one day I aspired to make a like a series of cuts of the cuts. If every one of my videos has the Dewalt drill appear, and I continue to make videos for another bazillion years that I'm allowed to be alive on the planet, then um, you know, think how many like hole saw videos that will be. And so, the gesture is consistent, and the form is consistent, but then the space around it is the data set that's always just kind of m- moving. Um, and on that thought, I've been thinking a lot recently about like what the difference between an equation versus an algorithm is. Because, you know, an equation is 2 plus 2 equals 4. You're mm-hmm. adding up components and getting a known integer as your output. But when you build an algorithm, you're more so building a structure, and mm-hmm. then whatever parts you put in, it yields something, but you don't know what's going to come out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's like... I'm building this whole saw video art algorithm
0: so th- this is like the third time you brought up physics or math or
1: <laughs> this kind
0: of sequencing
1: yes <laughs> reference
0: to me while we've been making this photograph what where's where's it coming from
1: you know I think as an artist I, I'm very interested in material research I'm really interested in materialism I'm really interested in philosophy and philosophy, you know, not just how it extends from, say, like a continental romantic, you know, men in Paris smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee philosophy, but like philosophy of math. Mm-hmm. How people are actually trying to analyze structural relationships and what we know to be reality. Mm-hmm. And granted, I'm not a mathematician. I'm just, you know, a video artist with a ponytail and a hole saw drill. But <laughs> I do see myself in a, a moth and a, and a <laughs> luna moth. But, um, but, but I do see, like, there being a type of research that's being generated.
0: What about the story behind Cut Copy Sphinx? Yeah. Which is another one where the saw or the, the drill is super, super present. And I suppose the, the main image that's left with you in that, in that film is that the face of the Sphinx is sort of repeatedly being kind of drilled through and mm-hmm. this void is left. And then that void is populated sometimes by your eye or your hand. What's the story with that image? how did you come acquainted with it?
1: That image was entirely inspired by doing a historical investigation of this particular sculpture of a French garden sphinx from the 1700s in the likeness of Madame du Pompadour, who was this very fascinating, incredibly intellectual individual during her time that was setting up political treaties she's most beloved in the arts as being kind of the patron of the arts that set up you know this idea of artists getting paid for their labor but you know what what
0: an idea I
1: know what an idea (laughs) but um but she also was a mistress to the king and so a lot of the historical record just cites her as a mistress completely Mm -hmm. dismissing all of her other intellectual engagements on an arts patronage and political level. So I was looking at this sculpture of her and I was fascinated by it. And then I was also fascinated to learn that it is something that is often copied because mm-hmm. it's a object that is now in the public domain. You can copy it and copy it and copy it and copy it. And I was just thinking, Oh my gosh, it's so strange. Like her image now exists outside of her. I, I wanted to kind of experiment with what it meant for, I don't know, like a ghost to have agency. And My other point of inquiry into the sculpture was related to Socrates Sculpture Park, because I was a fellow there. I, I guess technically I still am for another few months until the next cycle of applicants comes up. But it was this Sphinx sculpture that I wanted to make a work with for my Socrates residency, but at the same time, if understanding like the physicality of the Sphinx, I knew that I also need to go in the opposite direction and look at its Essentially, it's like dematerialized physicality. And so doing that through a video, you know, if you have like the gesture of copying something over and over and over, then the antithesis of that would be breaking it down. Mm-hmm. And you can break something down by cutting it. Again, you know, to bring it back to like a sciences. A sciences level, you know, when you're a scientist, it's like you have your lab, you have your data set, and then you're looking at the materials and you're like, what are all the different ways that I can activate them? And then when you think about things as a graphic facilitator, you're like, okay, I'm aware of symbolic meaning making. How can I then use materials to make meaning? To then relay an information set about how culture is operating. It's like creating a some type of like psychic mirror. So that was... My thinking behind cut coffee sphinx.
0: <laughs> you also I suppose you described it as being a feminist response to the myth of Oedipus and the Sphinx. Yes. How do you how do you see that as coming into it?
1: You know, the myth the myth of Oedipus is just all this masculine bravado that really focuses on the journey of Oedipus. And the mm-hmm. Sphinx was this really nomadic, fascinating creature. And then Oedipus just like kills the Sphinx and the Sphinx disappears. And I remember thinking like, well, I don't believe that. Like I, I just don't <laughs> believe that narrative, and I don't want that narrative. Uh-huh. And um, you know, how many sculptures of Oedipus are there in the world versus how many sculptures of Sphinxes are there? And so my desire to also make cut copy Sphinx was to kind of recast a narrative of Oedipus and the Sphinx, where the Sphinx may quote unquote die, but she actually lives on. Mm-hmm. Forever. Because
0: that's the figure that sort of endures from that.
1: And it still endures within yeah. cultural legacy. I mean, there are there's the Egyptian sphinx, the Greek sphinx. I mean, this myth is like Greek in origin, but you know, there's the sphinx as it was picked up in French traditions. You can see it in, you know, Polish arts. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just the sphinx. omnipresent. It's omnipresent. And I kind of love that. It's this, it was never really living because it was a mythological character, but you can't really kill it either. Mm-hmm. And there's something just very delightful about that.
0: So what about, it's funny, because I'm kind of going through like a laundry list of all these these kinds of like ideas that you play with and these, yeah. these things that you inject into these films. But I'm very just curious about the...
1: The God, party is starting <laughs> up next door. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: I hope it sounds okay. I bet it does. No, but, but I'm very curious just because like a mind map, these ideas and these kind of symbols pop up again and again. I'm just very curious about the origins of each of them because they seem so particular. Like now I'm thinking about honey.
1: I know, which I is
0: in almost every film. Sometimes yes. kind of overlaid on top of a, of the image yes. in a sense and sometimes yes. very in the case of let's say um, honeymoon, which I think it might be a pun as well. It is. Is very like physically in the frame, you know, and it's mm-hmm. very almost performative. So what's the what's the deal with honey?
1: I'm really attracted to viscous fluids, viscous, <laughs> viscous fluids, and fluids, and fluid dynamics. And when you see, when you see a liquid move across a thing, you better understand both the thingness of the thing and then the movement of the liquid. Um, honeymoon, the large scale installation that I recently had up at Times Square as a part of the Times Square Arts Coalition's programming or Times Square Art Alliance, excuse me. Um, it's a coyly literal artwork. It literally is uh, my hand holding a small, glowing model of the moon as my other hand exists above it but off frame, squeezing honey down. And so the video is a stagnant macro shot of my hand holding a moon as just honey just drips and oozes and goes down the surface. You know, my desire to make that was a desire to facilitate just a very... Deeply, deeply serene, but also maybe a bit sinister moment as well. Mm-hmm. It's like when you actually give space for materials just to play out as they wish to be or how they are, it can be very strange. Because yeah. in, that, in that video, I mean, I'm performing in the sense that I'm holding it, but the actual element that is performing is the honey. Mm-hmm.
0: That's yeah, the motion right. of the film.
1: I mean, that's that's the thing that's essentially moving. Um, in honey, I don't know, it's, it's pretty charged symbolically as well. I mean, it has so many different cultural connotations. I mean, the ancient Egyptians used it in embalming practices mm-hmm. to ensure that the pharaohs would carry on into the next world. A lot of cultures use it related to uh, celebrations, to celebrate new life. You obviously
0: got to experience it, like, at <laughs> <Yeah>. midnight in... <laughs> I know it's crazy, but you obviously you obviously got to experience it at midnight in Times Square mm-hmm. when this interrupts the advertising that like surrounds you in that chaotic, chaotic yes. environment. What was the what was the reaction you found? Like, do people kind of stop and people don't stopped understand?
1: and they looked up and they're like, "What is going on?" Because it's it's a complete metaphysical inversion. Times Square is a space of much light busyness energy hectic energy chaos and when you suddenly see a single shot image of a hand appear across a dozen screens and Mm -hmm. it's very calm people just don't know how to register it Mm -hmm. they're like what is going on but everyone stops and looks up and then just like watches the flow of time just kind of drip down the screen I had really positive feedback. Everyone was pretty tripped out, but um, I don't know. I feel like I made the world's largest ASMR installation. Oh
0: my god! <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which makes me so happy, you know? You pro- just... <laughs>
0: it's probably the most watched ASMR video, if we can call it that. That's ever.
1: I mean, there's different. I recently
0: learned what this was, by the way. Yeah, I did not know what a- I did not know about the world of ASMR until maybe a, two months ago.
1: Audio sensory meridian response. It's essentially individuals that experience a sparkle like pleasure sensation in their mind when they either hear a sound or see a movement or feel a texture.
0: People (laughs) describe it to me as not being sexual. Yeah. But it absolutely is. That's like, I feel like that's (laughs) the whole thing. But
1: it's it's really strange. It's definitely a uh, kind of fetish. Community, but how the fetish is defined is really hard to pin down. Because it's a lot of people whispering seductively to one another. It's a lot of people brushing their hair for one another. It's so, all very comfortable. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like it's erotic, but it's erotic and deeply banal. Yeah. It's like the most banal form of eroticism, and I think that's why, for me, it's it, it just feels so welcoming, you know?
0: It's like the eroticism of, like, picking up your boarding pass yeah. at, like, the check-in counter. Oh,
1: yes. You know? The eroticism. <laughs> it's like these, these yes. weird,
0: you know, I, like, there's, like, these, uh, it's like the eroticism of, like, opening a bottle of
1: water. I love that. Yes, <laughs> I do. And I think that's why it feels very inclusive to everyone, because mm-hmm. a lot of people have these small moments of pleasure where they, you know, run their fingers through their hair or watch a little droplet of water roll down a glass and
0: audio obviously is a huge part of that do you think about that sort of like sensory kind of manipulation when you're I mean you score all the all the films yourself too
1: thank you yes I do my own sound work and I you know because I do love ASMR and I do love field recordings
0: so you do like ASMR
1: yeah but I like specific types you know it's it's a big genre
0: do you like it as a do you like it as like as a conceptual activity, or do you like actually enjoy the actual experience of ASMR?
1: Oh, both. I mean, I do think it's wonderful it. <laughs> that people feel empowered to turn on a microphone and eat a bag of chips
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> for strangers and post it on the internet. That's what a great. great what it's a, like, go you. <laughs> what
0: great worlds the internet has given us.
1: I know. You know, I also think like, I mean, the world we live in today is pretty crazy and filled with a lot of horrible things, but there's something so beautiful about strangers coming together to listen to the soothing sound of ice being crunched, mm-hmm. I mean, that's just—I yeah. love it. And so, I think, I think these kind of sensorial experiences we have that we might actually think are idiosyncratic or weird are actually shared by a lot of people. Yeah, and um, it's comforting. Yeah, and to reference that to sound, I mean, I—I'm the type of person that always pays attention to periphery sounds, like the periphery sounds that we're hearing right now of mm-hmm. music and the different machinery that's coming through Queens, and I—I I love that because it's a way of building out a space. And yeah. again. Because I, you know, I really identified as like a sculptor where I think of everything as a unit that you're moving. So like sound is a unit. How do you build out the sound of a cave? You know, you need to have like a water droplet, but with a ton of reverb on Mm -hmm. it.
0: So are you making kind of all those sounds yourself?
1: Not all of them. Some of them are field recordings of actual sites and Mm -hmm. specifics. Um, So, you know, if there's... A cave just north of Austin called Longhorn Caverns, and you can go on a tour there. And I've like taken my H2 field recorder, just like turned it on. And Mm -hmm. so some of them are mine, and then other times, I don't know. There's a community of people that take field recordings and put them online. Yeah. If you want to know what Heathrow Airport sounds like, you know, you can find it.
0: I love that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I do too. Again, it's like it, it feels so exciting. You know, I like. I one day hope to go to Japan and visit a shrine, but I can. Listen to an audio recording, mm-hmm. and it almost feels like i 'm there
0: yeah, you know it 's something that I never really thought about until I started doing this podcast, yeah, because i and it's the same thing I got my little my little zoom. Eight for the gearheads. We're recording on a Zoom H6.
1: Love it. And
0: there you go, <laughs> <laughs> giving up the secrets. And when I got this, you know, just the equipment to record conversations,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it just got me in the headspace of like editing audio, thinking about audio. And since then, I have like made little recordings of spaces, and it's kind of an addictive thing to start doing.
1: Yes, I I completely agree. And so again, when I'm on the road traveling for work, I'll take a short recording of a short recording of like a conference room that has a strange air like conditioner tone. tone. Yeah, it's a tone, um, and that's something that you start to pick up on is that there's a there's a tone to kind of every space that you're in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that's you know, why
0: churches are special.
1: Yes, it's like I, the
0: original reason why people like believe in God. Like so much of it is that you walk into this space and you're like oh my God, Like everything sounds powerful and big. It's it's a sound design yeah, question, Yes, it's really. a sound
1: design question, and there's a lot of resonance. And it is kind of the resonance that stone has, the way that stone interacts with sound. I think about that, too, or I think about a very specific musical instrumentation. If you look at bells, chimes, mm-hmm. they also are these devices that have these very specific frequencies that emit just a lot of variance.
0: I guess we should talk sort of specifically about... Mm-hmm this show that we're in right now. Yes. Pony Cocoon at False Flag in Long Island City.
1: So Pony Cocoon is also the name of the new video piece that I created for the exhibition. And the exhibition itself includes three sculptures that I made this past summer while in residence as a fellow at the Vermont Carving Studio and Sculpture Center, which is a small residency at an old defunct marble quarry. And... The video, Pony Cocoon, is a somewhat ematic video where you see me in character as my persona business witch actually in one of these corporate hotel rooms while I'm on a job, and I'm there in the room with my blonde ponytail prop. And then later the video switches gears and I'm in a different space. It's a macro shot of my ponytail as a luna moth hatches from a cocoon.
0: I have a lot of questions. (laughs) Let's start. <laughs> the first question is and I should say it's it's a it's beautiful the film and it's actually interesting that you brought up earlier this kind of CGI, you know, because I bet people ask you if some of the things are CGI. They
1: do. And I'm like, no, that's real reality. Yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) But it is because there are elements that feel almost like surveillance or like a video camera, very, very reportage. Then there are also these elements that are really, really glossy and Mm -hmm. feel almost like commercial imagery, almost like the kind of imagery you'd see in like a beauty campaign or like a sort of technical imagery. I suppose my first question is this persona. Business Witch. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? What is, what is
1: Who is Business Witch? Business Witch is me, um, Virginia Lee Montgomery. The name Business Witch came about when I was in grad school at Yale because I would show these videos of myself in the hotel rooms and people would be like, who is that? And I'd be like, well, it's me. And they're like, but who is that? And I was like, I don't know. It's like Business Witch. <laughs> and they're like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, you know, she's out there doing magical things, making money. And people are like, What? So um, Business Witch is this persona that I have that exists within the liminal sites of hotel rooms. Hotel rooms literally being these kind of in-between spaces. Mm -hmm. My clients don't hire Business Witch. You know, they hire, you know, Virginia, the graphic facilitator. So you don't
0: have like a website where you're branded as Business Witch? No,
1: no. (laughs) I mean, I could, I could, but, you You know. You
0: might get more clients, I don't know.
1: Business Witch just kind of became this way of me being able to encapsulate this persona that was having this specific type
0: of experience and then where this this idea that you're gonna have sort of a moth being born out of the out of the ponytail that we've become that we've become accustomed to as a kind of character as like a recurring character like as in a novel or something where did that come from and then how do you start to act on that
1: Mm, mm, that's a really good question so so much of my video art practice really is me making sense of the world around me very much so in the same sense that at night when you dream your dreams are your your cognitive sectors trying to understand and process different experiences you mm-hmm. have and then you, you know your subconscious is speaking to you at that same moment you know with that in mind thinking about the dream world nature of art film and me trying to make sense of my own reality as I move between these different spaces, but then also me understanding that um, I have this brain inside this head, there's things that are going on in, coming out, but then there's always this substance that's like excreting out, and that's my hair. (laughs) And whether I can control it or not, there's just always this hair like excreting from my head. Or growing. Or growing. Or growing is a word that that we
0: use sometimes.
1: Or growing. So something is growing.
0: Excreting's better, though.
1: Like, something is growing out of my head. Yeah. And what's growing out of my head is the hair. And then I was like, okay, well, then what's growing out of the hair? And then I was like, well, you know, what is inside pony? And then I was thinking about it and doing some um, etymological research and really kind of looking into the base words for psychology Mm -hmm. and that beginning word psyche means mind it means spirit it's a greek word it also is the name of the butterfly wing goddess Mm -hmm. and so a very very old form of the word psyche also means like butterfly so i was like okay what if you know psyche yields psyche what does that look like and so i was like okay you know hair a byproduct of the brain then has another byproduct that was actually then the desire to do this this kind of um, merging of an entomological and an etymological mm-hmm. inquiry. So from the mind comes the butterfly, and
0: we were talking earlier about these these shots that are these kind of really tight macro shots yeah. of this moth kind of coming into existence, and it's an a mm-hmm. luna moth. It's a very beautiful.
1: It's a luna moth. Very yeah.
0: beautiful the kind of creature. Mm-hmm. How did how did you begin to Is this your moth?
1: It's my moth. I mean, this this video, I'm very proud of it just from the fact that it was very, very difficult to get footage of that happening. I mean, you're really watching this tiny, fragile creature erupt out of a cocoon. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like nature footage, nature documentary footage. And you can't force anything like that. You Mm -hmm. know, the creature comes when the creature comes. Mm -hmm. So uh, in order to film this, I actually reached out to... A entomology supply website, ordered a handful of Luna Moth cocoons, and over the Christmas holiday, when I knew that I would have downtime, Mm -hmm. um, set up this small macro system to hatch a Luna Moth from my ponytail. Mm -hmm. So I like this idea that, you know, me and Pony, while we were on work break, we're going to like...
0: Cultivate some moths.
1: Yeah. We're going to have like a baby. <laughs> wow. And so this moth in the video is actually moth number three because the first two hatched so fast that I, I couldn't grab my camera in time because mm-hmm. I didn't realize that if you actually watch the video and you time it, the moth comes out of the cocoon in about 15 seconds. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and it feels like forever in the video. It
1: feels like forever in the video yeah. because a lot of my video art style uses a lot of frequent jump cuts, yeah. which is something that we're very accustomed to when you watch TV. You know, there's a jump cut maybe every half a second.
0: And advertising is like exactly. full of
1: that. But when you actually are forced to watch a fixed frame shot that's just 15 seconds long it feels like an eternity but it's really just 15 seconds
0: yeah but it's amazing because because you're absolutely right you're watching this film and the beginning you're you're jumping around and all of a sudden you're like watching this moth try and break through and you're like oh my god (laughs) there's so much tension in it
1: so much tension and it feels very uh, like claustrophobic for a second so you can kind of feel the claustrophobia that the little moth feels at that moment where it's like i gotta get out of here And it's just literally burrowing a hole, which again, to bring back my obsession with holes and drill saws, like the moth chews like a perfect little hole Mm -hmm. that it then pushes its little body out of. When it came out of the cocoon in the ponytail, I was shocked to see that it itself is this kind of long, linear form.
0: Yeah. It's much longer than you think it it would be.
1: It's much long. it looks much more like a worm caterpillar mm-hmm. than it does a moth. And it had this segmented look to it where I was like, oh my gosh, that looks like the ponytail that I use, like <laughs> the blonde ponytail that's segmented with the hair ties. And my mind was just blown. And then, um, you know, instantly the little caterpillar wants to climb. So then I just grabbed the ponytail and hung it vertically within my little white uh, prop box that I shoot in and... And then it just does its thing.
0: So then this shot that we, that we kind of shot with, this, this vertical shot of the ponytail hanging down in the moth with mm-hmm. its sort of now fully developed wings, yes. they kind of unfurl.
1: They unfurl. Yeah, it's, it's, it's
0: like a shrink wrap almost. It's, yes. it's wild.
1: It's amazing. And there's a, there's a shot in the film that's time lapse. Over about an hour where you actually watch the moth move fluid from its abdomen Mm -hmm. up into its wings. Because when it's born, it's born with these like tiny little shriveled wings. Yeah. And And then you can't
0: imagine it could fly. It's like You can't imagine you can fly.
1: Actually, when you see it, it looks more like a, again, like a worm with legs. It doesn't even look like a moth. But it climbs up. It kind of hangs on the side. And then again, to bring back this like theme of liquids, it... I think it was just amazing to watch it, and you know that it's redirecting liquid in its body into its wings, that then later have the agency to fly Mm -hmm. away. I mean, it's, oh my gosh, nature. Just mind-blowing.
0: Beautiful show, beautiful video. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Virginia Lee Montgomery, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, too.
0: I'd like to thank Virginia Lee Montgomery, as well as Edwin, Alexander, John, Whitney, and Mel at False Flag. You can see Pony Cocoon through March 24th at the gallery and I recommend keeping False Flag on your radar. They're doing some really cool things. Remember you can see my portrait of Virginia in her show at williamjesslaird.com slash imageculture as well as on Instagram at williamjesslaird and at imageculture. I'd also like to throw a quick shout out to Jonathan Hirsch and our friends over at Neon Hum. He's built truly one of the best podcast production studios around in addition to his own massively successful show Dear Franklin Jones which you should all listen to. Jonathan was nice enough to share some insights on how we can grow image culture, so I'd like to thank him for that. This show is produced by Sarah Levine, and our music is by Jack and Eliza. Thanks so much for listening.